From the garden level of Harvard Medical School's historic Vanderbilt Hall in Boston, this is Think Research, a podcast that discusses the stories behind medical research. I'm Abby, your host. Think Research is brought to you by Harvard Catalyst, Harvard University's Clinical and Translational Science Center. When evaluating health policy and practice, cost is often left out of the discussion. Health decision scientists, however, look closely at cost alongside other factors like mortality and quality of life. These researchers synthesize information from a wide range of sources to estimate the health consequences and societal costs of treatments. On this week's episode, we talk with Dr. Ankur Pandya about how he got started in the field of health decision science and his research evaluating the 2013 guidelines for the use of statins to prevent cardiovascular disease. Dr. Ankur Pandya is an assistant professor of health decision science in the Department of Health Policy and Management at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. He teaches introductory health decision science and conducting research built on these methods. His research has been covered in the New York Times, National Public Radio, NBC Nightly News, and other media outlets. Hello, Dr. Pandia. Welcome to the show. Thanks. Your career focuses on health decision science and research based off of these methods. Can you tell us what health decision science is and how you got into this field? When I was a student, when I was an undergrad, I didn't have like a specific path I knew that I wanted to do. I tried being a chemistry major and then I realized I didn't like the smell of chemicals, so that didn't work out. And then I thought, uh, well, I'll be pre-med because that's something to do, something to say. Uh, but then you still have to smell a lot of chemicals. Uh, and then also I didn't want to like touch people like that. So uh, I was trying to f- you know, figure out what I wanted to do. And then in my, I, took, I did MPH and I took a course called Decision Analysis for healthcare. I didn't really know what I was getting into, but within a couple of weeks, I was hooked. I said, yes, like, this is the way I think, or this is the way I want to think if I don't already think that way, because it's a set of tools that are very practical, very rational. Um, it's a systematic way of thinking. Essentially, in decision science, you ask a question like, what are we trying to do? What's your goal? What's your objective? How are you going to measure that? Uh, we try to quantify uh, these goals. And then we ask the question, well, what decisions can you make? What actions can you take to maximize the probability of achieving that goal? Um, in healthcare and health decision science, our goal is usually, our goal is often to maximize population health. And we can measure that. Um, and then we layer an extra part to the problem, which is what if we had a budget constraint? So what if we're trying to maximize population health subject to a budget constraint? So, for example, when you go see your doctor, uh, they have kind of all these options that are available to them. Should I do a physical exam? Should I do a lab exam? Should I do an imaging exam? Should I recommend some course of treatment? Uh, They get information from you, and they're trying to optimize your health. Um, maybe not subject to a budget constraint, uh, but maybe they are. Maybe they do have different financial incentives in the healthcare system that they're also responding to. So uh, that's kind of a clinical level decision-making process. There's a patient and there's a provider and they're trying to make decisions to optimize something. And we can think about a higher level decision-making process too, like in health policy. So we have a lot of different levers in health policy. Uh, These are decisions that we make. 
what are the best levers to pull in health policy to optimize health, subject to a budget constraint. We don't want to spend all of society's resources, all of our dollars on healthcare. We want to kind of find that sweet spot where the amount we're spending, we're seeing uh, good value, good um, returns on our investment. Uh, so these are different types of problems where decision analysis, health decision science tools can really help organize all this information and make these complex, high stakes decisions kind of more manageable. One of your research projects looks at cardiovascular disease and the cost effectiveness of statin drugs. How did you get involved with this project and what have been the findings? So statin lowers cholesterol, it prevents cardiovascular disease. And so I was kind of working on this uh, for years as a graduate student. So I did my PhD in health policy with a concentration in decision science. And the topic that I looked at in my dissertation was the role of cholesterol testing for cardiovascular disease prevention. And the idea there was what information are we getting from this cholesterol test that we're all recommended to get every five years? Uh, and wh what I found was most people probably don't need that cholesterol test every five years. We could probably get the information we need about cardiovascular disease risk from easy things like age, sex, blood pressure, even BMI, smoking status, things that don't require a laboratory, um, don't require to take any blood, things like that. And the clinical decision, the kind of intervention that's triggered based on this information that we gather is whether or not to start a drug like a statin. And uh, the, the papers got published and they got picked up a little bit in kind of the clinical world and the press. Then in 2013, the American Heart Association, American College of Cardiology, uh, released these joint guidelines about cardiovascular disease prevention to initiate statin therapy in the public. And these guidelines had really big impacts. So if you kind of follow the guidelines, the upshot was that half of adults between the ages of 40 and 74 in the United States would be recommended to initiate the statin drug, even if they didn't have a history of cardiovascular disease. So this was a big, you know, wide-reaching health policy. It was on the news, you know, the day this, these guidelines came out, front page of the New York Times, uh, it was on CNN, it was on kind of major outlets, and there was a lot of debate about whether these guidelines were overreaching, you know, too, too many people would be recommended to take these drugs, are we over-medicating our society, are we turning healthy people into sick people by giving them these drugs? Um, and there were, either, there were people on the other side saying, you know what, if you look at who's dying from cardiovascular disease, it's actually a lot of the people are, are missed in the 50% of people who are recommended to take statins. We're not doing enough for those people. We're not preventing enough disease. And so I was sitting back, having done this, you know, kind of other work on decision analysis, cost-effectiveness modeling about cholesterol, and then kind of the decision to initiate statin drugs. I was sitting back and I saw, in 2013, I saw all this debate in the news and the lay press and the clinical journals and the public health journals, and I thought, I can answer this question. This is a decision problem. The question is, how many people should be recommended to initiate statin drugs? And I have the tools. We have the tools to do this using cardiovascular disease modeling, kind of simulation modeling. So we create these computer models to test out different policies, test out different decisions, and simulate what might happen to a patient or what might happen to a population. If we take different courses of action, uh, what would the impacts be on mortality, morbidity and cost. Those are kind of the three things we care about in decision science. So that's kind of like our goal. And so that's how I looked at um, that question, which was how do we balance the health benefits, the health risks, and the costs from different versions of this guideline that might 
recommend more adults be put on statin drugs, might recommend less adults be put on statin drugs. And sure enough, what we found uh, through this analysis, through this uh, modeling exercise, this simulation modeling exercise, was that um, the guidelines, kind of where they put that number, where it was about 50% of adults being recommended for statin uh, uh, initiation, was cost-effective. It was actually a decent policy if you weigh the benefits, the risks, and the costs. And a big part of this is that um, statin drugs... Uh, have been studied for 30 years. We know they're effective. They're not a silver bullet for cardiovascular disease, but we know they reduce the risk in all kinds of people, people at high risk for cardiovascular disease, people with low risk for cardiovascular disease, people with high cholesterol, people with moderate cholesterol. Um, so we know they're effective. Um, we know they're generally safe. They have a couple of side effects like muscle pain, um, a small but significant uh, increased risk in diabetes. Um, but, um, you know, in, in general, they're pretty safe. And then recently they became cheap. They became low cost. And so instead of thousands of dollars per year to be on these drugs, it's more like less than $100 per year. And if that's the price, you know, these things are effective, they're safe. Uh, this is, cardiovascular disease is the number one killer in the U.S. and the number one um, health condition uh, that results in healthcare costs. So, you know, it kind of made sense. And so that study... Um, uh, because of the policy question, because it's just, you know, we had the right tool at the right policy moment, uh, got picked up in those major outlets and, and was discussed a lot. And so that was um, a very rewarding project to work on. In your research, you stated you use simulation modeling. What does that entail and how does that help lead you to the answer to your research question? So simulation modeling means uh, we're actually not using human subjects or animal subjects or like cells. We're, we're doing everything uh, in silico. We're doing everything uh, through computer simulation. And so uh, the way we do it um, in our group is uh, we take a representative U.S. population. So for example, in cardiovascular disease, there are risk functions that are estimated from the Framingham cohorts that say for a person's age blood pressure, uh, sex, smoking status, diabetes, cholesterol, what is their predicted risk of cardiovascular disease over the next 10 years. We'll use that information to kind of come up with a, a base case uh, estimate of what, what might happen to these people um, based on their risk factors. Uh, from the statin trials, these are large randomized trials, um, tens and thousands of patients, maybe hundreds of thousands of patients for statins. They looked at you know, what is the relative risk of statin treatment on cardiovascular disease. So we'll take those relative risk estimates, those effectiveness measures from different studies and then apply them to these risks that we got from this big epidemiologic cohort. There might be other, let's say, observational studies that look at, now what are the side effects of statins in the general population that, that, that we're picking up? Uh, we might use those effects um, to figure out what the side effects are. Our cost, different study might do costing, so we'll use that information uh, to figure out what the costs are. So we kind of find this uh, population, starting population, where we know their risk factors for cardiovascular disease. We know their age, their blood pressure, their cholesterol, kind of various factors we need to know to then predict what might happen to them going into the future. And then what we do is we layer interventions on top of that. Now we say, well, now what if more of them uh, exercised? What if more of them ate better? What if more of them got statin drugs? Or what if more of them started smoking? You know, we kind of uh, do these hypothetical scenarios. We evaluate different policy uh, ideas, different levers, different tools, different trends, um, to then see what the impacts would be on mortality, on the quality of life, and on costs. You've also worked on a couple of stroke imaging studies. 
What can you tell us about that? So decision science methods are particularly well-suited for assessing the value of information that we gain. So as people, a lot of the things we do in our daily life is getting more information about a situation to help our decision-making process. So for example, I'll look at the weather report before I leave the house to figure out if I need to bring an umbrella or not. Or if I'm buying a house, let's say, you know, I want that home inspection to get more information about the situation before I make a decision one way or another. And in healthcare, um, this kind of information gathering happens all the time. Again, at the clinical level, every physical exam is getting more information about a patient. Every blood test, every blood test result is more information, uh, biopsies. Um, and so imaging uh, is um, a very important part of this information gathering process in healthcare. Um, it's also a leading contributor to escalating healthcare costs as health technologies um, in diagnostics and imaging um, get more advanced, they also get more expensive. And so uh, I've been looking at the use of imaging in the prevention and treatment of stroke using decision science methods. So essentially it's asking, what would the decisions be in the absence of imaging? If we didn't have this information about the blockage of the carotid artery. So the carotid artery is this blood vessel in the neck that supplies blood to the brain. And when that gets blocked, that's a known risk factor for stroke. And so there are these questions like, these policy questions, should we do ultrasounds to detect this level of blockage in the general population? And then we'd be able to identify people at higher, higher risk for stroke versus not, and maybe we'd intervene with some surgeries or intensive medications and things like that. Um, what we actually found in that case is that if you're looking at the general population, it's not cost-effective to do this. It's not cost-effective to just blanket, you know, do a blanket policy and say, let's look at everybody's carotid arteries and figure out what's going on because the decisions you'd make in the absence of that information are kind of similar. Um, it doesn't really move the needle on those decisions, and there's a lot of costs involved with these extra imaging tests with this extra gathering information, and there are side effects with false positive results and kind of extra workup, um, things like that. Um, you know, and that said, uh, in acute stroke, um, we have found that some of the imaging involved there does lead to cost-effective uh, treatment decisions in terms of who's eligible for what kinds of treatments in this acute stroke setting. It goes back to, again, one of the main strengths of health decision science, which is it can tell us the value of information, right? There's so much information we can gather, but only some of it's going to be useful. So it really boils it down to um, does... What is the probability that information changes our decision? And it considers what are the stakes involved. What are you currently working on? I'm really excited about some new work I'm embarking on that aims to connect cost-effectiveness analysis, which, again, is one of the main tools we use in health decision science. It's um, essentially um, for any health service, we ask, what's the bang for buck? Uh, if this health service improves health, but also increases costs, what's that trade-off like? And uh, what is high value versus low value in this very quantitative, systematic way of assessing its cost-effectiveness? Uh, that's kind of, as a health decision science, that's something I'm very comfortable with, very familiar with. But in terms of health policy, let's say in the U.S., it's not quite mainstream. We don't really use cost-effectiveness analysis very explicitly in the U.S. currently. It is becoming a little bit more popular, um, particularly among professional societies like 
American Heart Association, for example, or um, uh, some of the uh, major vaccine policies, guidelines, recommendations um, are based on cost effectiveness analyses. So that's good. But in terms of policies being debated in healthcare reform, let's say in the US, cost effectiveness analysis really isn't part of that yet. But what is kind of mainstream in the US is trying to incentivize value. We can all agree, most of us can agree in US healthcare policy that we want to encourage high value services, things that are high value in healthcare and discourage low value uh, services in healthcare. The problem there is value is often uh, underdefined or not defined at all. Um, and so some of the work that I'm trying to do is to say, look, in decision science, we have a very quantitative way of defining value. It's with cost effectiveness analysis. We get this ratio that essentially tells us the bang for buck in healthcare. And if we use this way of defining value, essentially cost effectiveness analysis, how much health are we getting for that dollar spent? Um, you know, that is a systematic quantitative way to identify high and low value services. And then we can set policies based on that information to say, if there are some high value services that we want to incentivize, that we want to encourage, how much should healthcare payers pay for that? What's the level that they should pay to encourage providers or patients or both to do high value things like control their cholesterol, um, do their recommended screenings. Um, and if there are low value services, you know, how should we discourage those? Um, and again, we'd identify those low value services using this quantitative systematic way, cost effectiveness analysis. Thank you again for joining us, Dr. Pandya. It's been a pleasure to have this conversation with you. Thanks, it was fun. Next time on Think Research. We've come to see that often people are looking at treatment as a risk-benefit ratio. And sometimes the risks of starting treatment may actually be higher than the perceived benefits. To sit in a clinic all day means they don't have a day of work. And certainly many of the things associated with HIV that may be more unique to HIV as opposed to other medical treatments that we deal with, like HIV-related stigma, can certainly stand in the way of people starting treatment. Dr. Ingrid Katz discusses the socio-behavioral research she is conducting in South Africa to understand why some people living with HIV and AIDS don't seek treatment. Harvard Catalyst Think Research is supported by NCATS, the National Center for Advancing Translational Sciences. Subscribe to Think Research on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. To find out more about our podcast or suggest topics for future episodes, visit our website, www.catalyst.harvard.edu slash thinkresearch. Thank you.